Good morning, 1548 Heights members and friends online and in person. Grace and peace to you in abundance. Just a quick heads up, you see it in your bulletin that June 11th is Baptism Sunday at 1548 Heights. We uh, like to designate a certain day every quarter or so just to invite people to be baptized into Christ. And if you've been thinking about that or praying about that, we invite you to single out that day. We do have to fill up the baptismal and get things ready. And so that's one reason we point ahead to a date. Our mission at 1548 Heights is to be a transforming church, changing lives for God and for good as God transforms us into the image of Jesus. And one of our rhythms is to gather for the weekly worship assembly. It's so good to see you today. You know, I, I, I enjoy preaching on these three-day holiday weekends because it's just a more relaxed feel. You know, I know most of you don't have the time pressures you might normally have, and so I feel like I can just, you know, take as much time as I want up here. And so I'm just going to sort of spread out and relax and, you know, share some things with you for a few hours. Not really. We're continuing our series called Good and Beautiful. This is based on a book by James Bryan Smith. You'll see it here, The Good and Beautiful You, Discovering the Person Jesus Created you to be. Not necessarily in sermons, but in small groups. We've worked through the first three of uh, Smith's books, and this one especially was poignant to me. As I told you at the beginning of the service, I probably wouldn't have preached this 30 years ago. You know, uh, who cares about us? It's about serving the Lord, right? But if you have a, a self-narrative that is not aligned with who God created you to be and, and, and how God feels about you, then how, how can it be, how can you live a life God intends for you? And so it, it is good to, to focus on this realm of what God has made us and, and what he desires for us and so forth. So in our first message, we talked about how we have a soul. We have a soul. We are embodied souls. And our souls are the deepest essence of our God-breathed humanity. And our souls need care and attention. In the second message, last week, we talked about our bodies. Uh, we are embodied people. We have a body, and our body is not just physical, but it is sacred. And it is a gift to be steward, stewarded. It is a servant to be directed, and it, it is an instrument to serve God and others. And I exhorted us and urged us not to get caught up in some of the toxic cultural pressures of striving for beauty and appearance that are culturally created, but simply to strive to be healthy and functioning uh, with this beautiful instrument God has given us. And so today we're going to talk about God's desire for us, that we are desired by God. We're not just tolerated by God. We're not just accepted by God. We are desired by God. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, we're going to hear today about your great desire for us, and it's not at all self-centered to dwell on this because you created us in your image in love. And I pray that in, in, uh, at a deep level, we can hear this truth today so that we can be free to release ourselves and our lives to you, knowing how much you want us. 
Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we've done each week, we're going to start with what uh, Smith calls a false narrative and then look at a true narrative and then break that down a little bit. The false narrative about being desired is that you are an accident, that you are an accident, kind of a material accident. This is the materialist perspective, if you will. Leo Tolstoy was a great Russian writer who was also a Christian. He lived in the 1800s, and he, he noticed a worldview even then, even then, gaining traction, and he described it. This is not his view. This is describing a worldview that he saw gaining more and more uh, of an audience. Let's read it together. You are an accidentally united little lump of something. That little lump ferments, the lump will disintegrate, and there will be an end of the fermenting and all of the questions. Wow. Wow. Uh, Richard Dawkins is an atheist writer that many of us are familiar with. He's an evolutionary biologist. Interestingly, he refers to himself as a cultural Anglican and a secular Christian. I'm still trying to figure that one out. But he says this, the universe at the bottom has no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. Wow. Science writer and atheist Marshall Brain says this, your soul is make-believe, just like Santa. When the chemical reactions cease, You die. That's the end of it. As Smith puts it, all of us in this view are simply lumps of matter that do not matter. The great Christian writer and philosopher Dallas Willard said in 1997, there has been no advance in this materialist idea since Leo Tolstoy's time. This is it. Smith says, we may not be sure why we exist, but we don't know we are not keen on dying or comfortable with the belief that our loved ones who have died were just chemical reactions who ceased reacting, fermentation that just stopped fermenting. We look at the created world and feel that there must be a creator. We see order and elegance in the world. We feel a longing for beauty and goodness and truth, and we want it for ourselves and others. There's an expression that has kind of become more frequent that you probably have heard of. It's uh, deaths of despair. Anyone heard that expression, deaths of despair? Any of you conscious now? Or Okay, good. Uh, it refers to people who have died by suicide or of a drug overdose or of an alcohol-related disease, cirrhosis of the liver, so forth. And they're called deaths of despair because often the people who succumb to these are living in great despair. And the context for my reading these is that for the first time in years, the U.S. uh, life expectancy has lowered in the last two or three years. And it's primarily because of the deaths of despair of primarily younger people. Boy, that's a, that's a sobering thought. 
But I, I'm, I'm intrigued by a, a, a corollary, lives of despair. How do you measure lives of despair? The naturalist Henry Lowe, Henry Thoreau said memorably, the mass of men uh, uh, lead lives of quiet desperation. And he was referring to people who are functional, they work, they, you know, they go about their life, they have families and such, but it's almost entirely on a superficial level, and they never really taste the life that really is life, as John puts it in his gospel. And so the false narrative is that we are an accident. What is the true narrative? The true narrative is that we are desired by God. Friends, you are desired by God, not just tolerated, not just accepted. You are desired by God. First John chapter 4, verse 10, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Did you get that? God isn't just responding to us. God is taking the initiative. And this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God so loves the world. Listen to how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 43, verse 6 through 7. Speaking of Israel who is like a child to God and, and uh, from which we uh, are uh, heirs, if you will. Because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you, I will say, bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by name, by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Come to me, my precious children. Friends, God desires you. He's not uninterested in you. He's not even disinterested in you, which means neutral. God is passionately for you. I remember a book I read 35 years ago by M. Scott Peck, um, The Road Less Traveled. Anyone read that? Yeah, okay, good. It was a bestseller for like five years straight. M. Scott Peck was a psychiatrist and an author. Fun fact, he lived two miles away from Angela and me in Connecticut when we were there. He never stopped by for coffee. I was a little offended. But it was, it was a new way of looking at just spiritual growth, not necessarily religious spiritual growth, but just spiritual growth, grace and responsibility and things like that. And he told a story that I just remember very distinctly about how one of his clients, struggling in many ways, one of which was with just who am I, you know, self-esteem, this and that. And Peck noted that there had been a big snowstorm that week, as there happens to be in Connecticut during the winter. And his client, though he had a car pretty well equipped for driving in the snow, had gone off the road and had an accident, not badly injured. And Peck was intrigued by that because he said when he was driving in the snow, even though he was driving like a VW Bug or something, I mean, not equipped for this, just rooted in him was, I am beloved of God. I am valued. I have people who need me, who care for me. And he, and he concluded that that was the reason that he didn't crash, but his client did. Because he knew 
He knew how much God valued him. And so here is our predicament. Make this note, our souls hunger to be wanted. Our souls hunger to be wanted. We yearn for belonging, for inclusion, for community. Smith tells a story about when his uh, wife threw a surprise birthday party for him. Angela learned in our first year of marriage, that's not something she should do to me, okay? She threw a surprise birthday party for me. I'm a real big control guy. I know that that's very hard for you to believe. Um, but I just, see, I'm, maybe it's insecurity. I just kept thinking, do they want to be here or do they feel like they have to be here? You know, I just, ah. Anyway, 33 years, she's never done that again. And, uh. But Smith said his wife threw a, a surprise birthday party for him. He walked in, and this is the way it's supposed to work. You know, he just saw all his friends there and family and loved ones beaming at him and truly happy to be with him, and he felt so welcomed. He felt so welcomed and embraced. And, and he intuited that our souls need that. They crave that to be desired and welcomed. And so, I, I remember a, a, one of our 1548 members, he said, uh, back when he and his wife were looking for a church, he's, you know, we're, we were a small church then, we're still a small church, we were a lot smaller then, he said, we want to be in a church where people will notice when we're not there. You know, we want to be, we, we want to be welcomed and accepted in a personal way. And so, our souls want to be wanted. They long to be wanted. That is our predicament. Uh, some of you may have read uh, a longevity study that's gotten a little press recently that, uh, uh, you know, referring to lifespan and things like that, uh, they were able to isolate one variable, one variable that seemed to be directly linked to living a longer life, and that was relationships. Relationships. Being wanted. Being valued. Some of you are old enough to remember the series, the little television series, Cheers. Anybody? Cheers? Yeah, good. Uh, do you remember the theme song of Cheers? Here, I'll sing it for you. Not really. <laughs> Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. Our troubles are, are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. That is our predicament. Here is God's provision. God pursues us in love to share his joy. God pursues us in love to share his joy. Remember, God doesn't wait for us, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God doesn't wait for us. He pursues us in love to share his joy. About 13 years ago now, Wade Harlan and I went with our church's youth group to Colorado on a little expedition called Trek. Each of our daughters was in the youth group, and they wanted to go on Trek. And it meant, it meant a lot to them that their fathers would come, and so Wade and I went. It was... It was a neat experience, I mean, long, but uh, uh, we, you know, we, they learned to repel, we learned to repel, and 
So we hiked up to this base camp and took a day to acclimate. And then at 3.30 in the morning, the morning of the great ascent to the 14,000-foot summit, we got up. We had to leave that early because it was going to start snowing and you had to be back before dark and this and that. And, you know, we began that long trek up the mountain. You know, our 15-year-old daughters are scampering up like little bunny rabbits. You know, we look like mastodons. (laughs) I remember thinking, uh, man, they better appreciate this. (laughs) But we got to the summit, you know, yay! And I think sometimes people feel that's really what God does. He waits at the top for us. And if we work hard enough, we can make it there and finally have an encounter with God or know God or be what God wants us to be or something like that. But what does it mean that God comes down the mountain? He comes down the mountain for us. That's the meaning of Jesus' incarnation. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus comes down the mountain to say, you don't have to make that big climb. I've come down for God to pursue you in love. Here's a picture of a man you might not know off the top of your head, Francis Thompson. He lived from 1859 to 1907. I'll tell you a little bit about his life, and then something may click for you. He was raised, you know, in the church. That's everybody was then. And his dad was a doctor, so he went to medical school to please his dad, but he just wasn't really into it. He was a frail kid. He used to walk, his, his, his classmates remembered him, he was always walking along the hallway with his right shoulder touching the wall like he just wanted to disappear. He was frail and shy, but he was smart. He won all the essay contests. And he went to medical school, and he just didn't like it at all. But he stayed eight years, finally dropped out at age 26, What he really wanted to do was write poetry, write essays, write. So he went down to London, and he tried to make it as a writer. And it it didn't work, you know. He became homeless. He he got addicted to opium because opium was something he needed medicinally for his frailties, and he got addicted to it. He couldn't join the army. They turned him down. He was too small. He tried to go to Oxford. They turned him down because they said, you're an addict. He became homeless, living on the wharves of London, and no one would buy his material. Eventually, he was taken in by a prostitute, and she gave him lodging, and evidently, she sort of, I don't know, helped him find himself, encouraged him. He never named her. But he referred to her as his savior. And he began to sell, you know, his works finally and became a poet of some renown. But by far, his most well-known work, his legacy, is a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And here are the first lyrics. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst 
of tears. He goes on for 182 verses. The beginning is about fleeing God. The middle is about God pursuing him. And the end is about God finally overcoming him and him embracing God. It's very thick, I don't know, intellectual English. I, I, I don't even understand it so much, but it, it's got a beauty and a power to it. And all of a sudden, that just it was like a seed that just exploded. Look at the, you've got, you got books of the Hound of Heaven, you've got plays, you've got readings. I mean, it is his legacy. Isn't this significant? A young writer at the time, six years after Thompson's death at age 48 from tuberculosis, started reading Thompson, and he said it really affected him. It really shaped his writing. His name was J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And I wonder, I don't know, I haven't read any biographies of Francis Thompson, but I wonder if it wasn't living with the woman of ill repute, who, whose name he won't give, but whom he refers to as his Savior, where he first became aware that God had been pursuing him in love and finally opened his arms to God. Friends, God pursues us in love to share his joy. Now, isn't this interesting? To share his joy. Jesus says in John 15, 11, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Did you catch that? My joy may be in you. I want to give you my joy. You keep trying to find it when you're really pursuing pleasure. But let me tell you, it, it, my joy, I want to be in you. The young professionals have been reading through Tim Keller's book, uh, The Reason for God, and we got to the chapter 14. He's talking about uh, the, the divine dance, the Father, Son, and Spirit in this eternal, self-giving, loving relationship so that God is completely sufficient in God's self. Here's a picture of perichoresis, which is what it's called, uh, dance or going around and around. Here's the way we've tried to render it in art. But the Father, Son, and Spirit living in relational harmony and joy. And the, if, you, if you want to look at it this way, why creation? Father, Son, and Spirit want to share their joy. They want to share their joy. They don't want to keep it to themselves. And so God pursues us in love to share his joy with us. Paul says in Romans 8.31, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a if God is for us. Since God is for us. Since God is for us. Friends, I know you know this. I hope you do. I want us to know this at our deepest, deepest level, that God is for you. He's not indifferent. He's not uh, disinterested. He's not un uninterested for sure. He is passionately for you, and he pursues you. I'll close with this thought from a woman named Macrina Wider K. She's a Christian spiritual writer. Oh, God, help me to believe the truth about myself no matter how beautiful. Wow. Let's pray together, friends. Oh, Lord, we long to be wanted, and you 
Respond to that with your desire, pursuing us, sharing your triune joy with us. Oh, Lord, help us know this. Help us be rooted in this so we don't run our car off the road, so to speak, because we, we just uh, don't have this in our center. Father, fill us. Fill us with your spirit, with your presence. Help us live in the joy you want to give us. And it is through Jesus Christ who came down the mountain for us. In his name we pray, amen.